please open your Bibles with me to John chapter 8. Let me read from the Word of God, beginning in verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your Father? And Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. The last claim that Jesus made about himself was back in chapter 7. Verse 37 and 38, he said there, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. The reward for believing in Jesus is that he will satisfy your spiritual thirst with the eternal blessings of life in His kingdom. The living waters that will flow from the throne of God, giving life to the nations in the city of God, are available now through the ministry of the Holy Spirit to all who come to Jesus and drink from His truth. Today we encounter another claim at the Feast of Tabernacles that he makes about himself. In chapter 8, verse 12, he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So there's the reward for the person who follows him. He will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So to every person in this room, there is an assumption in Jesus' words that you already walk in darkness without Him. But if you follow Him, then you will gain the light of life. And I'll spend some time explaining what Jesus means by this claim to be the light of the world. 
But first, I want you to see why you should listen to Jesus to begin with. The religious leaders in Israel don't listen to Jesus. When he says, I am the light of the world, instead they object to whether Jesus even has the authority to speak this way about himself. Verse 13, they say, you are bearing witness about yourself and thus conclude your testimony is not true, Jesus. And as I've been interacting with several unbelievers over the last two weeks, they've brought a similar objection to the table. Namely, that's great if Jesus really said these things. In fact, some of them are quite inspiring. But convince me why I should listen to him to begin with. What kind of person is he really that I should even follow him? The scene here in John's Gospel actually provides a great opportunity to hear Jesus explain why we should listen to him and take his words seriously. If Jesus' testimony isn't true, if he has no grounds to make this claim, I am the light of the world, then he's not truly the light of the world and we should not follow him. But if his testimony is true, if there are really good reasons that he speaks the way he does, then we would be utter fools not to follow him. So, from the mouth of Jesus himself, here are three good reasons why you should listen to him and follow him as the light of the world. Number one, Jesus' mission qualifies him to talk like this. Jesus' own mission qualifies him to talk like this. The Pharisees have attempted to corner Jesus using a principle from the law of Moses, namely that any testimony should carry the agreement of at least two witnesses. And this was a principle that even Jesus himself alluded to back in chapter 5, verse 31. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not deemed true. Jesus will address this point directly in verse 17. But for the time being, he points out that even without the second witness, his words would remain true to who he is. In other words, lacking a witness didn't mean that he was automatically a liar. Something else about him carried sufficient weight to prove he was speaking the truth, and that was his mission, his coming from heaven to earth, and then his return to heaven from the earth. Read with me in verse 14. Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, and here's the reason why, for I know where I come from and where I'm going, but you do not know where I come from or where I'm going. For I know where I come from and where I'm going. If we take the Apostle John at his word, then we know exactly where Jesus came from. Chapter 1 tells us, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And John chapter 1 verse 14 also tells us, that this word became flesh. He became human. 
and he dwelt among us. For Jesus to know where he came from is for him to simply affirm his heavenly origin. Namely, he came from his eternal fellowship with God the Father and he came to earth. And the reverse is true as well. He will again return to his Father in glory within a few months of speaking with these Pharisees. But all of that descending from heaven and ascending back to heaven served a unique mission the Father gave the Son, and we pick up on it in verse 20. It's alluded to there. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. When Jesus says that his hour had not yet come, and when John says things that are like that as well, he's referring to the hour of Jesus' death and resurrection, which has been appointed by his heavenly Father. This is the fifth or sixth time we've seen a statement like this, where the hostility against Jesus is rising, and yet no one can touch him because his appointed hour to die had not arrived. And as this theme rolls out in John's Gospel, we can't help but see the much bigger picture of what makes Jesus so unique, namely his mission to rescue guilty sinners. The entire human race sits under the wrath of God, according to chapter 3, verse 36. God is rightly angry with the people on earth because they have ignored Him and put Him off and pursued the very things He either told us He hates or that we innately know that He hates. And yet God the Father chose to love us, to love the world. He loved us by sending His Son from heaven on a mission to rescue us, and that included Jesus coming from heaven to earth, taking on the human nature in which we committed our sins, living the perfect life we could not live, dying for the sins that earned us God's judgment, rising from the dead victorious over its power, and then ascending into heaven to sit at the Father's side as an ongoing testimony for His people that God wins. Nobody else shares this mission. Nobody else shared infinite glory with the Father for all eternity. Nobody else possessed the heavenly worth that belonged alone to the Son of God. Nobody else humbled themselves to such a degree that the Son did when He came down from heaven to become a servant unto death for His friends. Nobody else can die for the sins of the world like Jesus died No other human being has risen victoriously over death and entered glory in a resurrected human body like Jesus did. These things belong uniquely to Jesus Christ and His mission, and thus Jesus can speak about Himself in ways that other people cannot speak. Now, the Pharisees cannot see all this about Him, of course, because It says they judge Jesus according to their fallen nature, according to their sinful flesh, which is blind to these things about Jesus. But that they can't see them doesn't make them not true. 
What makes these things true is that Jesus knows them about himself. In fact, he was in the midst of living them, of living out the mission entrusted to him by the Father. So Jesus' mission qualifies him to talk like this. Nobody else can fill his shoes. Number two, God the Father approves of of Jesus and his testimony. God the Father approves of Jesus and his testimony. Jesus just established that he was uniquely qualified to speak the way he does. His words are true even without another witness because his own mission backs them up. Now he deals directly with the objection they raised in verse 13. Read with me in verse 16. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. So this is the second time. First time, my testimony is true. And he gave us a reason. Here's the second reason why. My judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two men is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. So if you want two witnesses, as your law states, I am one of them. And my Father who sent me here is the other. Which, as a side note, supports what the church has historically affirmed about the true God. Namely, there are three persons in one God. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Both Jesus and His Father are God. And yet, here, we see their distinct persons evidenced by the individual testimonies they give to the truth. Both the Father... And the Son distinctly testify that Jesus is telling the truth about Himself. In fact, Jesus will press the point even further next week in chapter 8, verse 28, when He says uh, there that I do nothing on my own authority. I speak just as the Father taught me. So what we end up with is God in the person of the Father bearing witness to God in the person of the Son who's received His testimony from the Father. In terms of the technical legalities that these Pharisees so wanted Jesus to live up to on earth, Jesus walks them right into the courtroom of heaven and says, is this enough for you? I mean, who who are you going to bring? against the testimony of the Eternal Father and the Eternal Son. What does a human witness amount to when God is bearing witness to God? That doesn't mean human witnesses are unimportant in Scripture. They are. Even Jesus brings up the testimony of John the Baptist in chapter 5. And John the Apostle himself will be a witness at the foot of the cross in chapter 19. So the human witnesses are very important, but it does mean that God's testimony about Himself is not ultimately dependent on man. The Father approves of His Son and His Son's words, and if Jesus, be- if, if, if human beings bear witness to the same about Jesus, it's because they've received it from above, from God. 
chapter 3, verse 27, applies across the board. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. So Jesus' mission validates his claims, and his Father approves of his claims. And now number three, Jesus is the sole point of access to God. The Pharisees, still judging everything Jesus says according to their flesh, give this objection in verse 19. Where is your Father? If Jesus is going to appeal to his Father, then they want to see him. Bring him here. And so Jesus answers, you know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would also know my Father. The Pharisees want legal evidence that they can weigh for themselves as they scrutinize Jesus. And Jesus cuts right to the heart of their skepticism and says they don't even know the God who wrote the law they quote. They don't have any real relationship with God. These are men who have the Bible. God's inspired word. People who've been entrusted with the oracles of God. They just tried to use the law against the Son of God. They apparently know God said something through Moses, and yet Jesus tells them that the reason they're so skeptical is that they don't really know God at all. If they truly knew Jesus' heavenly Father revealed on the pages of their scriptures, then they would see Him perfectly revealed in the man who is standing before them. But since they don't, they don't know Jesus, and thus they don't know God. What Jesus implies is what's written all over the testimony of John's gospel. He is how we know God. He is how we access God. He is God's supreme self-revelation and there are none greater. What does John say in chapter 1, verse 18? No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. So you want someone to tell the, that's telling the whole story about God? You look to Jesus. You don't look to Muhammad or Joseph Smith or your favorite preacher. You look to Jesus Christ. He reveals who God is Fully, He tells the whole story about God. About what He is like and about who He is. If you knew me, Jesus says, you would know my Father also. So this is why you should listen to Jesus this morning. Among all the other voices in the world, the Pharisees don't get it here, but John wrote these things so that we would get it. These things, he says in chapter 20, verse 31 have been written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus' mission aligns with all the words He's speaking. His Father stands behind everything He ever said and did, and He alone gives us access to the eternal God of the universe. No friend of yours, no company, no president, no religious leader, no pastor, no philosophy... No self-acclaimed prophet, no priest, no angel from heaven 
shares the right to speak as Jesus speaks. God sent no one else from heaven to die for our sins. God approves of no one else's words unless they agree with the testimony He's already given about His Son. And God has seen it fitting that we access Him solely through Jesus Christ. And if those things are true, then this is why you should listen to and follow Jesus when He claims to be the light of the world regardless of what men like Bill Nye say. So now that we've observed the heavenly, authoritative, divine foundation on which Jesus speaks, let's go back to the beginning of our passage and look at what verse 12 means. Jesus speaks with this kind of authority. We would do well to follow Him as the light of the world. So what does he mean? I am the light of the world. And we should remember that when Jesus says, I am the light of the world, that the world refers to everybody born in Adam, the whole human race, and that world is characterized by darkness. Even the assumption behind Jesus' words is that we all walk in darkness without Him. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, He says. That assumes that without Him, without following Him, we're already walking in darkness. Darkness is where we live our lives. To walk in the darkness of this world includes the following. It means we practice evil deeds and we hate the light. John 3, 19-20, The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. The moral problem with the world is that it hates how God's light shines in Christ and they prefer darkness. They prefer wicked things, evil deeds. It also means we remain blind to any light that offers us guidance to true safety and true salvation. In John 1, verse 5, he refers to the world figuratively as darkness in contrast to Jesus' light and then goes on to say, that Jesus, as the light, was in the world, and the world was made through Him, yet the world did not know Him. So we get a picture that the world is so bent on itself and on its darkness that the people don't even recognize the light of their Maker when He comes into the world. Or John chapter 35. uh, There are no... There is no chapter 35. John 12... 35, walk while you have the light, that is referring to Jesus, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he's going. He's just wandering around aimlessly. Even worse, according to our passage, the blindness is so great, the world can't even see the light when he's shining in front of their faces, like he's standing there talking to the Pharisees. They can only judge that light according to their sinful flesh. 
Then in chapter 12, verse 31, we find out that the world is also the realm of people ruled by the devil himself. Jesus refers to him as the ruler of this world there. The devil rules this world that Jesus speaks of, and it won't be too much longer before he's even telling his own Jewish kin, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do his desires. In a lot of ways, Jesus' words agree with Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 4 that the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And then lastly, another dark characteristic about the world is that it is plagued by death, and not simply physical death, but also eternal death and separation from fellowship with God. This is basically the opposite of having the light of life that he says there at the end of verse 12. If you don't have the light of life, what do you have? You have the darkness of death. That's what you possess, and that's all that you possess when you don't have the light of life. And uh, chapter 8, when we go on next week, will actually spell out why that death is present, namely because of sin. Sin leads to the death of eternal separation from God. So what then is the world? What kind of picture do we get here of the world from John's Gospel? The world is darkness because it's filled with a rebellious humanity who prefer wandering aimlessly with the devil to their destruction, all the while shaking their fist at God when he sends them the light. That's that's the world we should have in mind when we hear Jesus talking, saying, I am the light. Of the world. So when Jesus says he's the light of the world, he's not saying he is a light in the world among other lights. There is no other light in the world. It's dark, it's blackened by sin, death, and the devil. He is the light because he doesn't come from the world, he came from heaven to earth. The darkness has no hold on him. He enters the darkness from outside. And what is it that he comes to do when he enters this darkness? As the light, he rescues us and leads us out of the darkness. So the world is darkness, but Jesus comes to lead us out of the darkness. And I want you to think Old Testament with me for a minute, because this is where Jesus gets his light imagery. He's not arbitrarily pulling word pictures out of thin air. He's grounding himself in God's self-revelation to Israel. There are several places in the Old Testament where God reveals Himself as light, whether that's a flaming torch that passed through carcasses for Abraham or through a burning bush when He appears to Moses or in the likeness of a man clothed with fire and brightness all around Him when God opens the heavens to Ezekiel. 
But the one that stands out most pointedly and to which the prophets and the apostles continue to point God's people is the pillar of fire in the great Exodus deliverance. In Exodus 13, you remember the story. Israel sat in slavery under the oppression of Pharaoh's whip. They themselves were helpless and could not deliver themselves from the darkness of his tyranny. Instead of trusting God's promise to their fathers... The nation at large then began trusting in the idols of Egypt. They were without God and they were without hope. And then God shows them mercy and comes to their rescue. After ten plagues, God frees Israel from their slavery plunders the Egyptians, and the text says, the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they may travel by day and by night. And then a chapter later in Exodus 14, God reveals himself again in the pillar of fire as he stands between Israel and Pharaoh's army at the Red Sea, protecting them, fighting for them, defeating their enemies, ensuring they come away as his redeemed people, walking with God in the light of his glorious presence in this pillar of fire. And then this great Exodus deliverance sets the course for numerous songs in the Psalms and prophecies and promises that fixate God's people on his delivering light. To be in God's light was to experience true freedom and peace and rest and deliverance. And God's light would even fill the entire earth one day and shine so brightly in the kingdom that there would be no need for sun or moon or stars. I don't think it's an accident that John 1 reveals Jesus as the Passover lamb, that John 3 shows that Jesus surpasses the serpent in the wilderness, that John 6 identifies Jesus as the bread of life that comes down from heaven like like manna, that John 7 just said that Jesus gives living water, which is a kind of water that far surpasses what Israel drank from the rock in the wilderness, and now John 8 claims that he's the light of the world. All of these accounts of Jesus keep driving us back to the way God revealed His saving power in the Exodus and tell us Jesus brings every one of them to their intended goal and fulfillment. The pillar of fire in the Exodus foreshadowed the day when God's own Son would enter our darkness and lead us out of slavery to sin, deliver us from the tyranny of Satan, and rescue us from the plague of death forever. For Jesus to claim that he's the light of the world to these Pharisees is for him to say what the prophets had been saying all along. Oh, Israel, behold, your God, your God has come to deliver you and the rest of the world from wandering aimlessly in the darkness and to give you the light of life. And how does Jesus do this? Not through another pillar of fire. but through the sufferings of a cross and the victories of a resurrection life. Jesus rescues us 
by entering the world, overcoming all of its darkest temptations, snapping the power of sin through the cross, defeating death once and for all through his resurrection, ascending to heaven over all his enemies, including Satan, and and sending the Holy Spirit to all who follow him, so that God himself might be with them, much like God in the pillar of fire was with his people, carrying them through the exodus. Jesus sends the Holy Spirit to be with his people now that we might be with God and have the life of God within us. God didn't rescue Israel from Egypt just to leave them alone in the wilderness. His light from the pillar of fire signaled His presence with His people. He brought them out of slavery to bring them into a relationship with Himself. The same is true of the work of Jesus, which the Exodus foreshadowed. Jesus brings us out of darkness into fellowship with God. And where there's fellowship with God, there is life. There is life. We know that from the garden. Where there's fellowship with God, there's life. Sin separates. Jesus comes in, rescues us from sin, takes us out of darkness, brings us back into fellowship with God. And where there's fellowship with God, there is life. That makes Jesus worth following. He brings me into the presence of God, who is himself eternal life. As Psalm 36, verse 9 puts it, For with you, O Lord, is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. So the psalmist bringing together the light he knows from Israel's history, saying in there, when you're with that light, You have a fountain of life coming upon you. Or Psalm 56, verse 13, For you have delivered my soul from death, yes, my feet from falling, so that I may walk before God in the light of life. Why does God deliver His feet from death? To walk with Him. To be with Him. To give Him the light of life. The same phrase that John uses, that Jesus uses in John 8.12, the light of life. Or Psalm 89, verse 15, Blessed are the people who know the shout of joy. Speaking of the the, uh, joyful sounds that the entire assembly is, is making because the Lord is leading the assembly of His people in triumphant procession over their enemies. Blessed are they who uh, know this shout of joy, who walk, O Lord, in the light of your face. So being, it's all about being with God. It's for the shouting for joy. He's defeated their enemies that they might have Him. When you read these psalms from the vantage point of John 8, 12, the whole world should see that the light of God's presence has manifested itself in the person of Jesus. Or let's try Psalm 43, verse 3. Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them, God's light and God's truth. What does Jesus say in John 14, 6? I'm the way, the truth, and the life. So we've got both Jesus saying, I'm the truth, and he's, I am the light here. This psalmist is saying, Let send your light and your truth out. Let them lead, lead, lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. 
The whole point of following this light and this truth is that we might have God. We might be in His presence. The whole point of God's light, bringing deliverance for His people, is so that we might dwell with Him. By coming as the light of the world, Jesus restores the relationship with God that we broke. He ushers us back into His presence, forgiven So to follow Jesus is to have your soul filled and satisfied with the presence of God Himself. So let me ask you a question. If you find your soul dissatisfied with God this morning, frustrated by the circumstances He's giving you, unhappy with your work environment, disgruntled maybe that your plans aren't panning out the way you thought they should. Maybe you are joyless at the next morning that God makes you wake up. Might a good question to ask yourself be, am I following Jesus? Because he says here, he promises, that when I follow him, that I will have the light of life. Regardless of how these difficulties present themselves and how these circumstances play out, if I'm following Jesus in them and through them, then I should have the light of life. He promises to fill me with the life of God. So if I'm bitter at life, might it be that such bitterness rises from some refusal in you to follow Jesus? Through these circumstances. If I'm angry with my children, might it be that what's really true of my heart is that it seeks life in obedient children instead of in God who is the eternal life? Life can only be found in God. If I hate my job day in and day out, and I rise in the morning grumbling about my boss, and I come home complaining about my coworkers, might it be that I think life is found in a world where everybody serves me, instead of in a world where Jesus commands I serve those who hate me most? If I'm just bored with life and passing the time piddling around on the internet and amusing myself with video games, could it be that truly I have yet to experience the life that Jesus promises when he says, take up your cross and follow me? If I'm just depressed that God hasn't given me a spouse Might your heart be searching for life in one man on earth when there's another man in heaven who already sits there and offers it to you abundantly in Jesus? Each of you will be in a different place this morning, but regardless of where you're at, Jesus offers you the light of God's life. Truly living in communion with God when you follow Christ. Life isn't found within ourselves or within this world or within 
the way we think circumstances should go, life is found in Christ because He is the true light who entered our darkness to fill us with God's life. That doesn't mean that you won't cry. And it doesn't mean that you'll walk around chipper all the time with a bounce in your step. But it will mean that the life you do have will sufficiently meet all of your needs according to God's riches in Christ. It will meet all of your needs and it will fill your soul with contentment where you're at. Indeed, Jesus promises to sow in, in all of these moments, Jesus promises to so fill you, his followers, with his life that he doesn't even shy away from calling you the light of the world in Matthew 5.16. He's not ashamed to even call you the light of the world. You, the ones who once sat in darkness, the ones who contributed to the darkness, He's okay with calling you because of what He did. He's okay with calling you the light of the world. In John chapter 12, verse 36, He'll say, Believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Now, neither of those statements, you are the light of the world, you will become sons of light, Neither of those mean that we are the light of the world in the same sense that Jesus is the light of the world. Our light will always be a derivative one. We are the light of the world insofar as Jesus makes us look like Himself. Insofar as God enables us to follow Christ who is the true light of the world. As long as we walk in the light of God's presence, reflecting His glory, we will be a blessing to each other and to the nations. And Jesus makes all of this possible by giving us the Holy Spirit. When the Spirit of God dwells in us, Jesus is not ashamed to send us into the world as bearers of His light. Paul even characterizes the church's mission to the nations as an extension of the light that shone so brightly in Jesus, also known as Isaiah's suffering servant. In Acts chapter 13, verse 46, Paul quotes from Isaiah 49. And he says there that the Lord has commanded us, the apostles with the church, the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles or the nations that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. That's a prophecy that Isaiah spoke concerning his suffering servant, which we know is Jesus. But the prophecy that spoke beforehand of Jesus becoming a light to the nations was now, by extension, applied to all who follow Him. And that's you and me, if you are a believer in Jesus. Jesus will spell out more of what it means to follow Him later in John's Gospel, but I think this is a good place for us to begin, namely seeing ourselves as burning lamps who carry the light of Jesus into the world. 
He entered our darkness to bring us into the light, even to make us light. But now that we are light, let us be mindful of His words. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is how we follow the light of the world. This is the path that God's Word lights up. This is the way our Master's life shone so brightly. And my prayer for all of us is that we would follow in His footsteps as light bearers in the darkness. You might consider now, as we go to prayer, maybe what darkness all of your neighbors sit in. Might they respond to Jesus in ways the Pharisees did? With more darkness? Their objections and their hatred and their hostility didn't keep Jesus from shining then, and they won't keep Jesus from shining now. Only Jesus has chosen to shine His light into the world through you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that you would make this people faithful bearers of your light in the world. But first, I pray that you would give them more passion for Jesus, who is the light of the world. I pray that daily they would find life in Him as they follow Him and walk in His light as He guides their path. May Your Word continue to be written upon the heart of Your people here that they may know what steps to take, what to turn away from, what to invest in. Give them great zeal as they look to all that Jesus has done in leading them out of darkness into the glorious light of your presence. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.